Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. We're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. It's great to be with you again this morning. Uh, we have two guests this morning, and during our first segment, we'll be talking with Rabbi George Gittleman of Congregation Shomrei Torah. Welcome, Rabbi Gittleman. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you here. Thank you for taking time. This, uh, as we mutually know, is our busy season of the year. And uh, so take, thank you for taking the time to come to be with me and our listeners to talk a little bit about your background and then maybe we'll get into some of the things about the holidays that are coming up very soon for us. Sure. So tell me, you know, um, how long have you been at Shomri Torah? I've been, um, been at Shomri Torah for 22 years. I think I'm in year 23 now. Wow. I thought I was, okay. I'm, so you're here 10 years before, almost 20 years? Yep. I just finished my 13th year. Wow. Okay. Okay. And a little bit of your background. I, I understand you were born at a very young age, so tell a little bit where you come from. And very and funny. <laughs> Boy. Okay. Yeah, I was born under a bad sign. Were you? Okay. <laughs> Albert King. That's right. Me and Albert King. No, I actually uh, grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and went to school, University of Vermont, and then moved to west to find my fortune in San Francisco. I worked in marketing for and sales for seven years, and then went to rabbinical school, uh, and spent a year in Jerusalem, four years in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then 22, going on 23 years here in Santa Rosa. This is the first uh, full-time uh, pulpit I have. I, I've had. I came here uh, as a new rabbi, and I've stayed ever since. Wow, that's that's a great thing. It says something about you and your community and the relationship that you have uh, have formed with that. Yeah, so. We are we are now uh, approaching the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. So maybe you can give a little introduction to our listeners about what this period of time is like in Jewish tradition and your take on it. In Hebrew, the days are called the Yamim Noraim, uh, which translates the days of awe. Uh, and I think it's a pretty good uh, summation of, of this time of year for the Jewish people, in as much as we take it seriously. It's a time for introspection. It's a time um, to do what's called a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul. So like an accountant at the end of the year would go through your books and see if everything adds up, we're supposed to do our own internal accounting to see, you know, how we spent our time, uh, what kind of person we were, what kind of, uh, you know, how were we with our family, how were we, how were we uh, at home, at work, with our friends. Uh, is there anything we want to do differently? Uh, are there mistakes we made we want to make amends for? Um, in that sense, it's a pretty serious time of year, um, and that's why it's called the Yamin Norim, the Days of All, because there's something awesome about taking such a serious look inside. And then there's the communal part. We come together, um, you know, in the non-Jewish world, the, I guess the, to compare to, say, normal Christianity, it's like Easter and Christmas put to push together in a 10-day period. So we're at services a lot. It's the one time of year where most Jews touch base uh, with their community come to synagogue. So we have big crowds and lots of people, see people we haven't seen for a while, and there's an energy afoot that you just don't experience any other time of the year. Yeah, that's, uh, for me, also the the notion of um, on Rosh Hashanah that we're celebrating the birthday of the world. In Jewish tradition, it is assumed the world was created at this time of year, and Rosh Hashanah 
is actually a, uh, a birthday of the human being, a celebration of the creation of the human being. So yes, there's there's uh, there's always a tension in Judaism between the the tribal, the particular, and the universal. And in this time of year, we have both. We have the New Year, which is a very universal holy day, uh, and then we have the Day of Atonement, which is very very much more a tribal, personal experience. So they come together in a nice way, I think, uh, for us this time of year. So would you think that that's interesting that Yom Kippur is a tribal experience? I get part of that because. For me, it's part of the universalism. It's it's dealing with ourselves as human beings, using Jewish modalities to self-examination, obviously the prayers and the rituals. And there's some historical recollection in the liturgy of Yom Kippur, but it's basically universal, no? So you can choose whatever frame you want. Okay. Uh, but when I think about it, like Rosh Hashanah, celebration of the birthday of the world, Yom Harat Alam, the day of the Earth's conception. Right. Um, but Yom Kippur is not that story. It's another story. It's the story of the high priest going to the Holy of the Holies uh, and uttering God's name, which we do not no longer ha- know how to pronounce, and uh, invoking atonement for the people, uh, for Am Yisrael, the Jewish people. Um, I'm not not saying it, it can't happen, it doesn't happen for other people, but Yom Kippur is very particular to the Jewish people wow. in a way that Rosh Hashanah is not. Okay, uh, I, and I hear that. I would just say one other thing. It's also much more personal. Um, all, when you spend the day in synagogue on Yom Kippur, you're spending the day mostly with yourself around other people. Sure, there's all the communal prayers, but, but whatever happens is happening more inside on that day, I think, than, than on Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. And of course, on Yom Kippur, we also take the time to remember our loved ones Correct. in the Isker service and connect back to the generations before us and around us, and uh, that's an important piece of the personal part of uh, Yom Kippur. That's true. It would be worth taking a second there because um, there's this beautiful phrase in our tradition, in our tradition, that we keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Um, remembering the dead, remembering those who came before us is such an important part of our tradition and makes meaning for us. And, and it's part of why I love Jewish tradition. And there's no day like that Yom Kippur for that. We really feel our ancestors there with us, especially actually the evening before on Kol Nidre is, is the name of the service, the evening of Yom Kippur, because our holy days begin at sundown. And, and this one goes all day from sundown to sundown. And that evening, I feel like my ancestors, our ancestors all show up to hear that music and then on Yisker, when we sit together and remember our dad, it's, there, there's something so personally touching and also communally powerful about invoking the dead and remembering there as a community. Yeah, one of the themes of this radio program has been to introduce to the community some of the heroes, the people who make a difference in the lives of the Petaluma community, not just the Jewish sure. community or not even the church community, but the general community. Um, and in some ways... Uh, taking the time to remember the heroes of our lives uh, on Yom Kippur is a profound connection that people can have with them. Uh, and I appreciate your reflection on that because it is an important part of the experience. Yeah, heroes, grandparents, uncles, aunts, you know, God forbid, children, you're remembering, we're remembering really everybody in that sense. With one caveat, that none of them was perfect. <laughs> that everybody, every human being had imperfections. Just Yom Kippur is about that. And so I really try to acknowledge also that those people we're remembering were human and that our memories are sometimes selective about their lives. Sure. I mean, 
suffice to say or important to say that it's not always pleasant to remember people you've lost. Sometimes it's a hard memory. Um, so it can mean lots of things. Uh, a colleague of ours once told me that for her, Yiskur, the, the service of remembrance is like having a cup of tea with a, with her grandma, you know. Um, but for others, it's to say if they had abusive family, you know, the, the, the process of remembering can be very, very painful. Um, there's another side to, to the whole season that, that we don't talk about much, but I've been focusing on more, and that is a lot of it's heavy. You know, we do this accounting, how we spend our time, what kind of people we've been, and it feels like we're kind of beating ourselves up. But there's another way to do it, and that is to ask yourself, well, what really worked in the last year? Where, where did I prosper? Where, where was I a good person? Where, where did my life um, feel good, and where, where was I thriving? And then try to, try to create uh, space for that in the new year. Try to say, okay, I want to do more of these good things rather than focusing just on the bad. I would say also about Yom Kippur. Traditionally, Yom Kippur was a time of celebration. Yes. yes. Um, because, okay, it's going to happen. We're going to be forgiven. We have a new year. We get to start over. We also, there was matchmaking that happened at the end of Yom Kippur. Um, so we've lost the celebratory aspect of Yom Kippur. But uh, in my own way, I'd like to bring some of it back because it just gets kind of heavy. And I'm not sure it's so helpful. When it, when it gets too heavy, we, we tend to want to go to the beach. Right. I was just telling an Israeli yesterday that when I was in Israel back in the 70s, the headlines in the paper were thousands flocked to beach for Yom Kippur observance, you know. And it was it was just you know, right. uh, the secular Israelis heading to the beach. But it wasn't part. But yes, there is that heaviness about Yom Kippur. And yet the liturgy is filled uh, certainly later in the day on Yom Kippur with the notion of celebration. The notion of forgiveness, of purity, and being able to move forward, uh, etc. I agree. There, there's there's some really challenging things. I mean, I sometimes think about, well, if I wasn't a rabbi and I wasn't leading services, w- would I go? And I think the answer is probably yes. But I must admit, like, um, if you only come once a year, this is not the right time of year to come because this is the one time of year where the liturgy, the prayers we say, are really problematic. God is a king. God sits on God's throne. God has a book of life and death before him. God decides who shall live and who shall die and by what means. I think, I'll just be frank and say, I think it's abominable. You know, it might work metaphorically, but I don't believe in that God, and I don't think most of us do. And I've gotten to the point in my life as a person, as a Jew, as a rabbi, where I really struggle with that liturgy, especially after the fires. You know, we sat and said, who by fire, who by water, as if God was deciding. And then a couple days later, our community got devastated by these fires. And I won't for a second believe that God had anything to do with those fires. God didn't decide your house will burn and yours won't. You'll survive and you will not. At least not the God I understand uh, or believe in. So that's the problematic part about these holy days is they, the liturgy, it works for some and I guess it works for ancestors, but, but there's big chunks of it for me right now that just don't work anymore. And I actually agree. Uh, I feel challenged by it. Uh, I don't know what your, the Reformed uh, con- Congregation Shomri Torah is part of the Reform Movement and they use the liturgical tools of the Reform Movement. I'm not sure that the prayer book, the Machsor, uh, contains in the Tanah Oh, of course, of course. And that is one of the most challenging, uh, it kind of summarizes the challenges uh, that the liturgy has for us, where it says, who shall live and who shall die. How do you how do you explain that when you get to it in the liturgy? Well, w- one thing is about uh, our matzah, our holy prayer, it's quite traditional. It's beautiful. It's relatively new, and um, there are lots of options, but the core of it's traditional. Um, which I think is basically a good thing because in as much as I struggle with it, 
what do you replace it with? And, and by the way, people come because we have a tradition. So I don't like some of it, and I struggle with it, but I'm not ready to get rid of it. Actually, one year we didn't do Untanatokut, this prayer that uh, has God decided who shall live and who shall die. And there was a line of people after services ready to ask me in some not-so-nice terms, what did you do? How could you take this out? So after that one year of experimentation, it's still in there. So we have it there. and From year to year, I give different explanations. I think... Um, Wow. So at this point, I'm not willing um, to mince words about the literal meaning. I, I think the literal meaning just doesn't is wrong, actually, and, and actually painful and, and in some ways almost abusive to repeat over and over again. Because then you end up saddled with the idea, I brought my own cancer on, I killed my own child, you know, all these horrible things that you actually didn't do and God didn't do, but that happened because things happen, because life is random. Um, because God's not God's hand in my belief system is not in history deciding who these 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 things. So on one level, I just simply say, look, I don't believe it literally. But on a, another level, it is true that there are consequences for our behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, we write in the book whether we'll live or die uh, by our behavior and our actions. The other thing that's, that's, that's true is we may not have any control over whether we get cancer or whether all kind of other things happen to us. What we do have control over, what we can write in the book, is how we respond. Um, we'll decide if we'll live in fear. We'll decide if we'll live in anger. We'll decide if we can respond with love. Those things we write in the book. And in those ways, I think we can relate to this prayer. But on the literal level, I, I don't find any way to relate to it. And, of course, the important part is the last few words, that there is a way to overcome those obstacles in the world through repentance, prayer, and deeds of, of service. See, I, I can't stand that part. Because yeah, to I me, like, that's the part, the most important part. <laughs> See, I think it's like, what, really? So if I prayed really the right way, no, no, if no, I did no, them good stuff, no. God would change God's mind. So, oh, because you gave enough tzedakah, enough uh, charity, or you know, you were righteous enough, and because your words were just right, I'm changing my mind. Uh-huh. No, no cancer this year. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, give you a cure. I can, I'll just be frank. Oh no, I'm glad yeah. you're being frank. No, uh, the, the end. The end doesn't work. I would say though the end is an end in itself. We should be righteous people. We should be generous people. Right. And prayer That's the part. and right. prayers are you know a good important thing to do. Um, but we don't do it because we get a reward for it. So the the text we use says uh, those three things help us to go along a better path of life. It doesn't say the traditional. That it erases the gezerah, the decree by God. Yeah. So we've changed those words. What, what I often do with that liturgy is I say sometimes the liturgy with which we disagree helps us figure out what we think about things and mm-hmm. how we feel about things. So if this is troublesome, good. Let's react to it. Let's have the feelings about it. And we it gives us a, a better definition of who we are by seeing something we know we don't want. That's a, ni- there's, there's that's a nice time. thing, but you have to ask yourself, but so why is this the only way we can have this reflection? We have to be confronted with something that's utterly obnoxious on some level or right. hurtful in order to learn from it? You know, we Jews are crazy in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, know. I, I, I look. But the same thing, the people wanted it, they lined up, they missed it, right? So because we are uh, a traditional people, we have a, a tradition that's over 3,000 years old, and that's what, it's part of what makes us Jewish. So yes, um, that's, my, that's our and my personal struggle. 
Yes, so our, our listeners who may not be in the Jewish community will now note that rabbis can disagree with each other and that that's part of our tradition. And it's a wonderful thing. We learn from each other. We cause each other to think about things in different ways. So I really enjoy the, this little give and take around a very complex and challenging aspect of, of Jewish life. I, I uh, recently ran into a teaching from uh, a Hasidic Rebbe from uh, the early 19th, the late 18th and early 19th century, Rabbi Nachman of, of Breslov. And um, he, uh, in his earlier life, was a pretty uh, strict um, man who lived, I would say, in, in the framework of the, of the judging God. Um, but in his later life, he moved away from that because he found that that, that that framework caused sadness and depression. He was very much into joy and uplift as a spiritual expression. And he offered another framework that I read for the, for the new year, for Rosh Hashanah. And it's a mystical framework. I'm not sure I understand all of it. But he says, he, he, the picture he paints is that there's no, there's, there's no one on the throne. It's not that God's not on the throne, but God's not there doing judgment. Instead, there are angels up there. And the angels have uh, ram's horns, chauffeurs, chauffeur ropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what happens on the New Year's? They dig for lost objects, and when they find when someone finds a lost object, they blow the shofar to celebrate the finding of the lost object. Mm-hmm. And so then the New Year becomes not a time of judgment, but a time to recover what we've lost, mm-hmm. um, and then to celebrate that. And I think that's pretty inspiring. I, you know, I think about the year we've had with the fire. We lost a lot. We lost a lot. We lost people. We lost home. We lost a sense of safety. Um, and but what do we find, you know? And, 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 and what are we going to recover? And can we celebrate that? So that's sort of how I'm 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 working. That's 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 an area that I'm working with this year, uh, which I'm excited about. So one of the things for the rabbis with the holidays coming is for us to find messages we want to share with our community uh, at this time of year. And um, it's, there's a lot to talk about. There's so much going on in our world. The aftermath of the fires, of course, and what it's like a year later, and lives that were affected by it. And we also have uh, great turmoil in our country around uh, values and what's important for our nation. What are, what are your inclinations around these things this year? So, both those become important for me. I mean, I tend, what I've learned over time is that um, if I'm going to be effective, I need to be honest, I need to be vulnerable, uh, I need to speak about also what's on my mind, uh, I need to offer the personal in a universal way. That is my story that's, that's going to resonate with other people's story, otherwise it's just narcissism. Um, so, for the new year, the fire loomed large because we went through a lot and uh, just don't feel like we can, I, I could be myself or be good to the community I serve without talking about it. And then for, for Yom Kippur, I feel on one level or another, you have to address the current political situation. Because the Jewish community, uh, among other communities, is uh, upset and I would say in some ways frightened, and rightfully so, um, about what's going on. We, wrote, we came to this country, it's not like America said, we love Jews, we'll accept you completely. We fought and we won. Um, and we fought and won because there, were, there was a legal system, there was a free press. We used the, the systems of, that make our democracy work um, to gain the rights and privileges we have today. And when we see them at risk, uh, when we see the press denigrated, when we see the judiciary, you know, attempts to really affect the judiciary in an unfair way, um, when we see the polit- political system, like the gerrymandering that's going on, we have reason to be frightened. So on some level, have to talk about that. 
Um, but I, I, I don't want to rile people up more than they're already riled up. So part of what I want to talk about is how do we hold um, ourselves in a world where every day you read the paper, I don't watch TV, but most people do, or watch TV and you get upset. Maybe not everyone does, but most, most people I know get upset. So one of the things I'm going to work with this year and talk about is ill will. Like how do we manage ill will? Because ill will is inherently bad for us. Ill will towards another person is like uh, taking poison and hoping it's going to kill the other person. <laughs> that is, it's not, you know, you have ill will towards someone, it only hurts you. It doesn't affect them. Not only is that true, but ill will has never made a situation better between you and another person. So one of the things I'm going to work with, uh, I think, is how do we manage ill will? Can we live in a world where we have less ill will, even for people that really are challenging, challenging for us? And then I think the other question for me that I'm working on is where is there hope? You know, where because we can't afford uh, to check out. Um, cynicism won't get us anywhere. We have to stay engaged. Um, the Jewish community, even talented community, we're small but we're powerful. We need to engage and kind of help help this country right itself. So how do we do that in a way? And how can I help inspire people to do the work that we need to do? Um, no, no answers. But like I, I was driving down here, listening to NPR. Do you realize that? Um, Something like 80% of our grid uh, is now clean energy. 80%. That's amazing. That is amazing. In, in a short period of time. Talking about getting to 100% now, but I'm celebrating the 80%. So in some ways, we can really make a difference. You know, climate change looms large, especially after the fire. So anyway, I'm searching to right. find, um, for me personally, but also for the people I serve, to offer hopeful um, uh, vistas so that when we enter the new year, we're not just angry or frightened, or both. I'm starting to uh, read um, Philip Roth's The Plot Against America. Right. And this is set in 1940. Uh, it's a novel uh, speculating that Charles Lindbergh was ultimately elected president of the United States and took away all, you know, vilified the press, tried to create an isolated America, etc. The Jewish community was constantly under attack. And so I, I'm just at the beginning, so I can't even begin to talk about the, the depth of the novel. But it's a, it's a frightening scene compared to, you know, to see what was happening today and uh, how this came about, that our nation is this way right now. So the note for, for the Jewish community, absolutely, the notion of hope is, is of essence. And I believe that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur ultimately is about hope, about that we have such we have a certain amount of power in our lives to make a difference in our world, and we're looking for the tools through being together as community and self-examination to be able to get there. Certainly, uh, one of my great teachers, Rabbi David Hartman, may his memory be for blessing. Blessing taught a long taught me a long time ago that to be a Jew is to believe in the promise of the future. And if you look at Jewish people, we've had lots of ups and downs, and it's been way worse than than now. As a matter of fact. It's hardly ever been better for us than it is here in America. So if we can't be hopeful now, then we have a spiritual deficit. Right. So I, th I think, but it, but it's easy to feel like, you know, we live in a bubble, there's not much we can do. So um, staying inspired and engaged is important. Um, and I'm just working on how, how does one do that and how does one inspire other people to do that. So you use the word spiritual deficit. So what's your definition of spiritual? Oh, it's a horrible that's, word. I know that's why you bring it up. Um, yeah, we all world. use it all the time. It's a horrible world, but in this sense, what I, what I meant was that um, 
there's something uh, in our neshama, in our souls, that's that's lacking, that needs nourishment. If we can't find hope today, because we don't, we live in a very hopeful society. There's lots of good going on, and we've never been so um, really free, safe, prosperous. So that's what I mean. This, uh, I don't know if I can express it another way. Right, because the word spiritual is used. I, people will say, "I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual." You know, that term comes out there all the time. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a very difficult term sometimes. Um, so, any other? Uh, let's see. So, we we touched on the the idea of hope, uh, the idea of cleansing. So, I, the Maxor has the word sin in it. What does that mean? So the traditional explanation for sin is more from it's uh, to miss the mark would be uh, like with the bow and arrow comes from the same root, um, and you know I I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what sin means and have we sinned and in what ways because uh, the language is, is loaded and not so helpful, um, so it's it's not necessarily the framework that I use but I do appreciate the sense that um, when we miss the mark when we do do something that we shouldn't have done or that's hurtful or wrong. We alienate ourselves. Um, so sin in that sense is alienation from God or from our higher selves or from the person we want to be. And what we don't want to be is alienated. So in that, that's kind of the framework I, I would use. In what ways have I alienated myself from God, from the person I want to be, from my community, from my friends, from my family? And then, of course, if I've hurt someone, I need, I need to acknowledge that and try to make it right. And so in that way, we work in two dimensions, the vertical and the horizontal. The horizontal is between me and another person, and I need to do everything I can to make those relationships right. And then the other is between me and the ground of all being. And that's, you know, where I bring the stuff I can't fix. I bring it to, the, to God and ask for help, ask for forgiveness, ask for love. Yeah, it's, uh, the, uh, the word actually, well, the word is uh, miss the mark, but also repentance is actually getting back onto that same direction to try to get to the mark, and which is an interesting image. It's a very different image of sin than we than I grew up studying in school uh, uh, with uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God and all those literature pieces that I read. So finding our way home, Ted. Finding our way home. Try to do is find our way home. Um, as long as we're not a psychopath, it should work. <laughs> it should work. It should work. Well, this um, yeah, this is certainly a, uh, a very busy season for all of us. Any few words uh, before we conclude our segment? Uh, the last thing I would say is that when it's all said and done, I think uh, loving kindness is the whole Torah. Loving kindness is the whole Torah. And if we Torah. can get ourselves there, then then we've done what we need to do. Well, thank you, Rabbi George Gittleman, for being with us uh, on Talking with Rabbi Ted. You are listening to KPCALP Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM online at kpca.fm. Thank you.
Good morning, Petaluma. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. Again, I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, also chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, bringing you this uh, program to have the opportunity to meet different people from our community who have profound effects on the lives of uh, all of us. During our second segment today, I'm welcoming Reverend Jeremiah Callenday, who is the new pastor at the Unitarian Universalist of Petaluma. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, and good morning. It's great to be here with you and your listeners this morning. Thank you, thank you. Wow. So you're new in town. Indeed. Has anybody shown you the ropes yet around here? Oh, I have had endless meetings, um, joined some great organizations of interfaith work here in Petaluma, um, including the North Bay Organizing Project and other movements for um, social justice here in Petaluma. Well, we have a very wonderful activist community, so it's great to welcome you here. And since I've been visited your flock here uh, a few times over the past years, I know they're probably very pleased to have somebody in who's going to be with them and help nurture their future with them. Well, rumor has it that you have already shared the truth with them, so <laughs> I am waiting to see uh, what I might be able to share as well. Uh, see, that's good. That's good. Yeah, usually if I go into a church and the pastor's not there, I usually say, well, now listen to the truth here. You know, got to be able to tell it. So um, where did you come from, and how did you, what's your journey of life been like and uh, getting you to this stage? Yeah, definitely. Well, I live in San Francisco. Um, I've been in the Bay Area for around a decade, uh, spent most of my adult life here, but I grew up in northeastern Ohio, uh, finished graduate school there, and then moved out to um, Berkeley for theological education. Mm-hmm. Of course, fell in love with the Bay Area, and I just couldn't leave. Aha. Uh-huh. So I noticed that there was a nice uh, long article about you in the Argus Courier a couple of weeks ago. And uh, you have a very eclectic background. Can you talk about some of the stuff that you have lingering in that past? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I've served in a variety of different roles um, as a spiritual leader here in the Bay Area. I worked in served communities in Berkeley, um, in San Francisco, and most recently in Oakland. Um, I've worked in the community um, also in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, working as a hospital chaplain resident, uh, working in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma as an intern minister at one of our um, great, you know, largest congregations in our movement, All Souls Unitarian Church. Um, and I have, you know, done a lot of organizing and political work 
um, both in Ohio and here in the Bay Area. So I hope to bring some of that experience um, to our ministries here in Petaluma. So, uh, first of all, your name. You, when we met, you talked a little bit about how you came to the name Calendase. So could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, what began the process was uh, a sermon that I heard by one of my dear friends, Reverend Tamara Labak. Um, He's a Universalist minister, and when I was early in my discernment process, she preached a sermon called Hallowed Be Thy Name, and it was about the importance of um, owning our names and finding, and if we're spiritual leaders, considering whether or not there's a name that's right for us um, and entering into a spiritual discernment process to discover that name. So I entered into a kind of intentional process that lasted about five years um, on meditating on what I wanted my name to be when I was ordained. And uh, through a kind of stroke of inspiration, um, Calende came to me, and it's a a Latin word uh, that is the origin of our English word calendar, um, and it references uh, the moon and calling, uh, and it seemed really appropriate for my calling to the ministry. So you use the term discernment process. What's that mean? Uh, discernment process is um, essentially, well, in the way that I conceptualize it, entering into a process of contemplation with the divine um, in order to allow divine creativity and inspiration to uh, infuse and guide one's life. Okay. Is that a particular philosophy? structure in which that term is used, or is it a general term? It's used in many different contexts within the Christian tradition and also within Unitarian Universalism. Okay. So could you talk about Unitarian Universalism a little bit? I'm not sure about how many in our community, they know there might be a group out there and they've seen it, but it's a little mysterious perhaps, because it's a small group in, in our community certainly, and a little bit about the background of the church and all that. Definitely. Um, the Unitarian Church was founded in the early um, 1800s, and it was a heretical Christian movement um, that rejected the doctrine of the Trinity in um, favor of the unity of God, believing that the notion of the Trinity was not biblical and that it was something extra-biblical created by the church um, and not something ever, you know, specifically uh, intended by Jesus, peace be upon him. Um, And the Universalist Church was founded shortly thereafter, um, and Universalist Church was also a heretical Christian movement, and it rejected the notion of eternal damnation and believed in universal salvation. Um, So these two traditions, these two heretical traditions, which were really the most um, liberal, I would say, progressive traditions in American history, um, played a great role, uh, at least leading figures of it did, in the founding of the United States, as well as in, um, you know, we can actually trace the notions of democracy in the United States back to the early congregational uh, churches, which are forebears. Uh, In 1961, these two traditions had actually become so similar um, (laughs) that they merged and formed the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations. So now we're called Unitarian Universalists. These doctrines 
still inform, I think, our theology. However, they are, um, we also welcome a great diversity of theologies and religious practices and spiritual paths um, so that we're not explicitly Christian anymore. So does the organized church use the term Christian anymore, or is it? No. Um, we, we draw upon um, Jewish and Christian teachings as one of our sources and obviously as our own um, historical identity. Mm-hmm. However, uh, you know, our members of our congregations can be uh, Jewish, pagan, Buddhist, uh, agnostic, atheist, you know, there's really a great diversity of people. Um, there's a common commitment to some core spiritual principles and values, um, but people are allowed to discern their own spiritual path in our movement. And is prayer an essential piece of your existence as a church, or is it a community organizing system? of getting people together who share common values? Uh, both. And, uh, you know, there are some, for some people, prayer isn't a particularly helpful mm-hmm. um, spiritual exercise, and they may find their spiritual exercise to be gardening or spending time in nature or um, perhaps a traditional discipline that's different than, um, you know, kind of what we traditionally think of as spiritual exercises. Um, personally, I find prayer very helpful, um, and it's a, a large part of my life. Um, however, Unitarian Universalists as a group, there's, it's hard to kind of say something that's universally true about you. <laughs> so, in the universal church, it's hard to say something universal, right? Yeah, that, right. There's such an eclectic group of people there, right? That's a holy paradox. Yeah. That's a, a holy paradox. That's good. That's good. So, um, in our conversations, you, uh, one of your concerns in terms of your activism what was the relationship with the Muslim community uh, in America, in our community, etc. And you, you started talking a little bit about progressive Islam and articulated that that's something that's really important for you to understand and be a part and to recognize and for our world to recognize that it's there. Could you take a look at that with us here? Yeah, definitely. Part of my practice um, is I'm a a Chisti Sufi, uh, and the Chisti lineage is a lineage of uh, Sufism, which is the mystical path um, of Islam. Also, I would say a a progressive path of Islam, um, and as such, a fundamental uh, path of Islam. We often joke that we put the fun back into fundamentalist. Um, And our practice uh, is largely um, centered on allowing people to, or facilitating uh, the ways in which people can connect with God, um, live a life of devotion to the divine, um, and facilitate that through the practices and the rituals of the tradition, much like Judaism um, or another tradition. And progressive Islam, I think, is particularly important because it's inclusive of LGBTQ um, people. Uh, We practice uh, gender equality. Uh, We have um, some, I think, basic tenets that fly in the face, perhaps, of more orthodox manifestations of Islam. Because as we know, Islam is not a monolithic reality, um, but it's diverse and complex and 
um, has existed in different ways across time. Yeah, of course, that last statement really uh, touches on uh, an area of problem in, in human existence, which is the generalization of other groups. Uh, all Christians are the same, all Jews are the same, all Muslims are the same, all X, Y, or Z are the same, meaning, and it's, it's certainly not true. The uh, Christian community, I don't know what the count is in America. At one point, I knew there were 150 denominations. That's not even dealing with ministers within the denominations who differ with each other and the people in their churches who differ with their ministers. So, this is, human existence is very complex and we all have the tendency in the human spirit somehow to generalize. They, the other, they're all the same. And it's actually, if we can say truth and falsehoods in the world, that is a big falsehood in the world. Yeah, definitely. And I think we have so much to learn from each other. Um, one of the things that um, I, I do is I teach uh, at the graduate level uh, multi-religious and trans-religious philosophy and theologies, which is how are these traditions in dialogue with each other? Um, how does the Torah speak to the Quran and the Quran to the Torah and to the, how do they speak to the Christian scriptures, to the Upanishads in the Hindu tradition, um, and what you find with a deep exploration of these um, traditions is there's a lot of a lot of resonance between them, and sometimes whole new understandings emerge from studying sacred texts next to each other or practicing um, traditions, sometimes in hybrid ways, where you uh, have perhaps a multi-religious or a hybrid identity um, that encompasses multiple spiritual paths. You know, and as Unitarian Universalists, that's pretty common for us. I think a lot of people who identify as spiritual but not religious may have that same type of eclecticness to them. Um, and, you know, I hope that people can, though, still connect with some of their communities, congregations, synagogues, um, so that they have abil an ability to ground some of that interest within, within a, a tradition that's meaningful to them. Yeah, from, from a human experience point of view, it's probably been important for people to uh, have their own identity and therefore mark the differences ahead of marking the similarities, because in order to maintain their, their identity. And, um, but if you go deeper into these traditions as you're intimating, then there is a profound connection in thought. Yes, nuances, sometimes outright differences, but there are many core values that are similar and overlapping among human beings who are use the spiritual traditions to enhance their lives in some way. So I, I think it's an important piece for all of us to realize, and that those generalizations are uh, can be difficult and destructive to a better world that we would hopefully all want to be able to live in. Yeah, and I think that we have enough um, tribalism and nationalism and nativism and um, division in our society and in the global community, and I think that um, you know one of the principles uh, of Unitarian Universalism is that we um, affirm the goal of a world community with peace, justice, and liberty for all, um, and we can't really achieve that without listening deeply to each other um, and without us understanding our traditions to be mutually uh, enriching rather than in competition with each other.
So you used the term a few minutes ago, spiritual but not religious. And I had just asked a few moments ago Rabbi Gittleman, who was in the studio, um, what's that mean? What does spiritual mean to him? What is that term? To me, it's, it's very amorphous in many ways. So I just thought I'd throw that back at you. Um, spiritual, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, to me, the words mean the same thing. Um, spirit, to connect with spirit, or uh, religion, to bind back to source. Um, so to me, those are the same things. I think that in the uh, people's common understanding, sometimes religion is associated with organized religion, and spirituality is um, particular to a more personal approach to religion. Um, so for me, I really don't see a division between them. Um, I think that the spiritual is religious and mm -hmm. vice versa. Yeah, I think uh, I often say, oh, you don't like organized religion. We're very disorganized. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I often joke that I think Unitarian Universalism may be among the, the most disorganized <laughs> of religions. Uh, yes. So uh, um, let's talk for a few moments about the, the local community and one of the things I had uh, asked you about was, well, what's your mission here? And uh, I don't know if you gave any thought to that or can respond to that question. Did you, what's that look like for you? Yeah, definitely. When, when you asked me what my personal mission was, um, as I've been reflecting on it, you know, I was definitely reflecting on um, what Christians call the, the greatest commandment, which is to, of course, love God with all of your heart, um, mind, and uh, soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. And for me, that's really been a guiding light throughout my life um, and ministry. And, you know, I think that is what religious life is really about, is how do we cultivate a really authentic love um, that is connected to a, a love that is transcending um, and beyond our wildest imagination um, and cultivate that in our relationships with each other, uh, within our communities, uh, within the global community. You know, I think that love is really a, a revolutionary power and is the, the very real presence of the divine in the world. Well, I would also add that uh, the, both of those quotes actually are in the of course, yeah. Jewish tradition, older, yeah. uh, love your neighbors yourself and loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might comes from uh, Jewish tradition. And the concept of love there is... In, in, in etymologically in the Hebrew comes from the root, the same word as the word for tent. Mm. And a tent is all-encompassing, protective, warm, inviting, all of those things. And that that's really a piece of what that love notion is that you're talking about both in the connection with the divine and our connections with each other. So I had to get that, that side in from that, Very uh, beautiful. that Christian uh, quote of, of the, in the New Testament uh, texts. Yes. So locally, um, where does your church meet? What are, they, what are they up to in the world? Yeah, definitely. So the Unitarian Universalists of Petaluma, um, we meet at 825 Middlefield Drive um, at the United Church of Christ of Petaluma. Um, we lease space from them, and of course they're our um, historical ancestor in the Congregationalist movement. Um, and we have Sunday services at 11.30 on Sunday morning, so those of you who may like to sleep in um, and <laughs> <a late> service, <laughs> right. come to a late service, uh, we have a 11.30 service on Sundays. Um, and then of course activities and programs from pastoral care to social justice to 
um, humanitarian service, uh, children's religious education, um, and a variety of different offerings and events throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And how long has the group been in Petaluma? How, how was the so th- this congregation is a fairly new congregation. We were formed um, in 2002, mm-hmm. um, so not very long, though we've had a, a UU presence in the North Bay for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you, with, with your congregation and with your efforts as their uh, leader, as their spiritual leader, how do you translate the value teachings into the activities of the community with which you're serving? That is, how do you take this, these texts, whether they be biblical, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and make them part of people's lives? Is there a trick to that? Well, you know, we get out and we do the work. Um, Black Lives Matter uh, movement has informed our uh, our current discourse. We've been on the streets. Um, I know many Unitarian Universalists have been uh, shutting it down, so to speak, uh, to draw attention to white supremacy culture um, and some of the, the outmoded paradigms that are really not serving life. Uh, we've been involved with the Standing Rock movement, uh, for indigenous sovereignty. We have been involved with the Occupy movement, um, calling into uh, question the concentrations of wealth and power in the capitalist system. Um, we have been in, involved in social justice movements from our earliest inception, from uh, women's rights movement, gay rights movement, civil rights movement, uh, the environmental movement. Uh, so we have a uh, track record of really putting our faith into action, um, and I think that that is uh, certainly true in the present day. And when we had our clergy meeting the other day, we were all uh, planning uh, to get together on the evening before Thanksgiving to uh, do a communal service like we did last year, uh, a group of us, and one of the issues or questions that comes up is how we relate this holiday to the Native American community and the concerns about that. Could you comment on that a little bit, about making Thanksgiving and still acknowledging this historical piece that's oh, challenging yeah. for us? Definitely. Um, as in my house, we, we often call it um, thanks grieving and thanks taken, um, which is uh, you know a recognition of the, the genocide, the abuse, um, the erasure that indigenous communities in this country have faced um, since the arrival of um, colonizing imperial forces um, and the, the ability to reconcile and heal those relationships, I think, begin with us being honest um, about the damage that's been done um, and you know reparations for the damage that's been done. Um, and we need to kind of get beyond the propaganda of Thanksgiving, um, which paints a very uh, quite false narrative of the, the history of this country and get real about what is reality. Um, I'm not living in a, a post-fact world, <laughs> though some may be. Yeah, it seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so in getting together as community, we can still participate in the notion of Thanksgiving of being thankful for the gifts that we do have as Americans of freedom and all the democracy and the things that we may 
cherish as, uh, and as shared values with at the same time putting it into the context of what happened in the past and how we reconcile ourselves with that history as we do that sense of gratitude, express that sense of gratitude. Definitely. I think it's a both and. Um, we can have gratitude and grief. Um, you know, we are complex beings and are, I think, capable of holding uh, complex feelings about the world. And uh, that's something that I think we can do this coming Thanksgiving. Yeah, it will be fun. Uh, I'll be able to announce the service as uh, this program gets closer uh, to the November 21st uh, occasion and uh, be able to let the community know if they choose to join us for such a celebration. That'll be good. So in the last few minutes that we have here, are there any uh, messages or ideas you want to get across uh, to our community and let them know you're here? Yeah, definitely. I would um, you know, encourage people to stop by if they want to check out our um, religious community. You know, as I said, we're pretty new and we're growing. Um, and also, I would just encourage people on the spiritual path. You know, maybe our community is not the right place, but uh, maybe your community is or uh, another community here um, may better suit their needs. But I really think we need people uh, intentionally engaging with spirituality in an increasingly secularized world. Um, there is a lot of profound power um, and inspiration and transformation that happens in religious community. Um, and I really want to encourage people to explore some of the, the healing powers and transformative powers that they'll find in such communities. So, use the word, of course, the secular society in which we live, a very secular world. And um, I happen to believe that even the, quote, secularists acknowledges that they are part of something greater than themselves, that they can't help it but do it when they see an expanse in the heavens of stars or go out to the waterfront and look at the ocean and the sunset and uh, a new baby being born and all the, all the miraculous things that we get to perceive as human beings. So uh, I think actually uh, there's room for secularism in, in all of this because all, I believe all human beings are affected by this something greater than themselves notion. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think secularism has obviously played a, a great role in our society. Um, but like all things, it's also, you know, there's been um, problems in us losing touch with, you know, we can, anyone can feel moved by the stars or a sunset, you know, and we can kind of have this moment of spiritual epiphany. But to really have, uh, to walk a spiritual path, I think, requires more than just those moments. Yes. Well... Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today on Talking with Rabbi Ted. It's been an uh, honor to welcome you to Petaluma, to get to know you better, and to have our community learn about the Unitarian Universalists of Petaluma. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, as we wind down our show today, I want to let all of you know that B'nai Israel Jewish Center is uh, available for celebration of uh, the high holidays coming up. Uh, you're welcome to check out our website at b'neiisrael.net uh, or to call our office and uh, join us for services and for our spiritual journey on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. 
You are listening to KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, kpca.fm online. Thank you. LP, Petaluma, California. Hi, this is Ed Perlstein, your host for Jazz. To make the perfect jazz cocktail, you take some John Coltrane, mix in a bunch of Miles Davis and a pinch of Herbie Hancock. Shake and enjoy. Get Jazz every Monday at 4 p.m. on KPCA 103.3 FM or www.kpca.fm online. Thank you for listening to KPCA, Petaluma's Free Range Radio. KPCA is a community radio station that highlights the creativity of individuals. Let your voice be heard and become a programmer. If you have something to say and want to get involved, visit us at kpca.fm or call 707-773-3190. I'm Naomi Takeuchi, and I'm the Movie Muse. If you like the movies, we'll have a chance to chat about films that are screening and have special guests as well. If you want to engage in the film industry and be inspired, tune into my show, The Movie Muse, Sundays at 6.30 p.m. on KPCA 103.3 FM or www.kpca.fm. Are you looking for an alternative to the usual political punditry? With free-range radio KPCA, look no further. Given the day of the week, local programmers delve into such topics as Pilates, mental health, and even independent journalism, with guests that evoke honest and open discussions. Tune in at 103.3 FM or online at kpca.fm. KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. (laughs) 